0: Amen. Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. We'll have a few more folks mill in here in just a bit that are downstairs. But let me mention a few things by way of announcements as we begin. Uh, We are thankful that um, if you haven't gotten the email yet, that uh, the nuns are blessed with their fifth. Esther Hope Nun who came in to breathe our atmosphere yesterday. And so uh, it's great. Uh, They're all doing well, and they're thankful for your prayers and typically what we do for those who have their second and beyond child um, we'll set up a quote-unquote crib shower and is that set up now or is that next week Um, next week week and the following we'll have this crib set up downstairs and you guys know how it works if you want to help them out with some supplies and so forth and then Jackie will also be leading the um, uh, meal train. If, um, if uh, we'll check with them as necessary. Fortunately, Grandma's in town, so uh, that they they, uh, they they have great help at the moment. But she'll be gone, and we'll coordinate that with you. So just pay attention for future announcements on that. Right. All right. Um, <clears throat> this week, too, we're continuing on with our missions in July. This is August, but. We're going to have an overflow. This last month in July, we were able to hear from several missionaries uh, within our own uh, country in the United States, and we also had one from Canada. Uh, this next month, we're going to hear from Allie McLaughlin, that's in um, uh, the, the, the ele- not this week, but the 11th, from Scotland, and then Sonny Simak from England. The following week, and that'll finish out our missions in July, overflow into August. This week, I'll be reviewing some uh, concepts in missions and our uh, our response to it, uh, and so forth. And that'll be on our. I'm talking about uh, this. All occur on our Wednesday evening Zoom. Uh, we start uh, at. We will go ahead and start at 6:30 with prayer and and then our missionaries will come in at 645. But this week, I will be hosting it and reviewing it. It will be worthwhile. I encourage you to be a part. Definitely the 11th and the 18th, when we hear from Scotland and England, we did have some time with some uh, issues with some other missionaries and their time schedules uh, because some of them are quite different, but these are relatively close, and uh, I look forward to hearing from them so uh, certainly be a part of that and the rest of the announcements i think that you can find in your worship folder i just want to mention also that we are having communion uh, today and it is an open communion that means if you are in christ if you confess christ as lord that you're obedient to him in believers baptism you do not need to be a member of this church Need to be a member of the body of Christ. We want you to participate, and due to some of our current restrictions and so forth, we are having you quote unquote come up and receive both elements, and then return back to your seat, and then we'll receive them together. That's how we'll be doing that, and we'll begin that in just a bit. For now, I want you though to prepare your heart, uh, to prepare your heart to both worship Christ and receive Holy Communion. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that even now, and, and then I'll pray for us corporately. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and you pray privately, and then I'll pray here corporately for us this morning. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I'm thankful that we are able to gather together as your people to worship your holy name. I pray that your blessings would be upon us. May the grace and mercy granted to us in Jesus Christ be always treasured. And as this day, as we've gathered together, we, we have confessed our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that we be reminded that the guilt that we have before you has been placed on Christ, nailed to the tree, suffered and died, atoned for everyone, has been buried and has risen, and in Christ we are alive in him. I pray this would be a great joy as we receive the blessing of communion to think of his body and blood. I pray it will not go lightly on our minds. But as we are reminded of it, that these significant truths would be enough to nearly overwhelm us whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in. I do pray for your people that they would be comforted in their times of personal tribulation difficulties that they might have, pain that they might suffer, disappointments, or whatever comes along their way. But ultimately, I pray the love of God in Christ demonstrated on the cross and the drawing of us to Christ would be sufficient to cause great joy in the souls of your people. I pray, Father, you would give us great courage this day, Whatever circumstances fall our way, I pray that we would not be afraid of those who might even want to do harm to us, to knowing that they cannot kill the eternal soul that you have brought to life, and may we fear God and teach others likewise that they might find their refuge in Christ and Christ alone. I pray that you bless our time. May your people grow in grace and knowledge of you. May we be encouraged one to another to love and good works. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Blake's going to come and lead us now in 244. Calvary covers it all. And I want you to, as he walks sings through this, leads this, think through some of the words and particularly this Line of chorus that we sing through it that Calvary covers it all. Think about the significance of what that is being communicated, and then we'll express that covering that we have in Christ in Holy Communion as we receive it in just a moment. 244 in your hymn books, let's rise and sing together.
1: All four verses of 244. (laughs)
0: Elements that remind us of this in particular, and we have them before you today the bread and the cup. The bread, of course, represents Christ, his perfect life. Live, the righteousness, obtain, he fulfilled all righteousness. You have not, you never will. Christ fulfilled them all. Perfect. Yet he took on his body, your guilt, your sin. Died on Calvary. The cup reminds us of the blood that he shed. It should have been your blood. Christ shed his blood. The perfect righteous one died for that who is absolutely unrighteous, ungodly. Calvary indeed covers it all to those that are in Christ. We take these as symbols to remind us of this truth. Just as we sing hymns to remind us of the truth, Christ has called us to institute this ordinance so that we would be physically reminded once again of the reality of the Incarnation and the true death of Jesus Christ took our sin on His body. So as we remember, we do bless these elements, and we'll call you to come forward to receive them. When you do, we do want we want you to receive both, and then return your to, to wait, because we will wait to receive these together. Like would you bless the elements?
1: Let's pray. Dear only Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together as a, a congregation to uh, remember your body and your, your blood that was shed for us, Lord. We bow before you in humility, Lord, and ask you to examine our hearts today, Lord. Show us anything that is not pleasing to you, Lord. Reveal any secret pride or unconfessed sin, <clears throat> any rebellion or unforgiveness that may be hindering our relationship, most most importantly, with you. We know that we are your beloved children, Lord, having received you and having received your death as penalty for our sinfulness. The price you paid covered us for all time as we sang, Lord. Calvary covers it all. And our heart's desire is to live for you. As we take this bread, Lord, representing your life that was broken for us, uh, we remember and celebrate your faithfulness to us and to all Of your chosen Lord we can't begin to fathom the agonizing suffering of your crucifixion yet you took that pain for us Lord thank you Lord thank you for your extravagant love and unmerited favor Lord thank you uh, that your death gave us life abundant life now and uh, eternal life to come Lord Um, we too receive this bread in remembrance of you and in the same way as we take the cup Lord representing your blood that was poured out Uh, on the cross, we realize that you were the supreme sacrifice for all our sin. Again, past, present, and future, as we just sang, Lord, because of your blood shed for us and your body broken, we can be free from the power and penalty of sin. And Lord, we thank you for the victory that we have in you. Again, we pray that you would just uh, work in our hearts. May our lives be an open book to you this moment, Lord. May we confess and uh, take... Uh, worthily, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: text in 1 Corinthians 11 in your worship folder, it delineates a considerable amount of this tree. It's worthy of looking at the last section, and it talks about when you come together. I'm thankful that we are able to gather together as a church to receive communion. Not every church today has the freedom to do that. In various um, locales, what we do, by God's grace even today. We're receiving this not as a um, grace to be consumed, but as a reminder of God's grace and mercy. That's what he gives us in that he graced us with the righteousness of Christ. The mercy that is the holding back of the judgment that we would otherwise deserve. These are symbols. These these do not grant great grace and mercy, but they do remind us of it. And Jesus said here to do this in remembrance of me. So first we will think about the righteousness of Christ in his life, and receive this in remembrance of Christ. The second powerful reminder that we have of Christ, of course, is the perfection that we have through his atonement. He is the propitiation, that is the full covering, the payment for all our sins. And so we receive this in remembrance of Christ, that in him there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Receive this in remembrance of him. And typically the church then often sings a hymn and dismiss. We're going to sing a hymn, but not dismiss. That's not a requirement of the order. But we do want to then think. The next hymn we have coming up is what? 626. And what's the title? I love to tell the story. I thought it was. And I hope you did. This is the story that you're going to tell. We want to encourage you to indeed tell the story. Let's stand and sing together. 626.
2: Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 65. Psalm 65 is found on page 480 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 65 is one of David's more than 70 psalms. That's almost half the psalms, or as they were known in the Hebrew language, the praises. Psalm 65 was written to be sung by the congregation most likely at the time of the harvest celebration, in praise of God's provision. Let me draw your attention to one word before I read. For this word, I believe, which we've already heard today, speaks to us today of God's provision and goodness for us. In verse 3, the word atone is found in the phrase you atone for our transgressions. That's the ESV translation. The King James reads, God will purge our transgressions. The NIV says, God forgave our transgressions. And the New American Standard says, He will forgive our transgressions. God Himself is the one who made atonement for all the sins of his chosen ones. All that needed to be done to pay our individual sin penalty, God did. The Hebrews sang praise to God for his bountiful goodness and his promise of the Messiah. I believe we should praise him all the more because we know Messiah has come and fulfilled his redemptive promise and will come again. Let's hear the joyous praise of Psalm 65. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who will hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout shout and sing together for joy. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We offer our praise to you this morning for your abundance, giving us life under the sun, choosing your elect for the adoption into your own family, forgiving all our sins forever, and reserving for us an inheritance in heaven. Today we look forward to that final harvest celebration, and we thank you, Lord. Now continue to bless our worship service, magnify your name in the proclaiming of your word, and make our hands worthy for ministry in your fields. Amen.
3: Amen.
1: Thanks.
0: Church, you're singing. I like that um, hymn, crowning Christ and looking forward to that coronation. I can't paint a beautiful enough imagery of that, but we will talk about it to some degree from our text in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. In which Jesus prays for the promise of heaven. Jesus continually intercedes for all who are called by his name, his disciples, Christians, and here the focus is that he promises them heaven. This is Christ's high priestly prayer. He has been praying for these disciples directly in that upper room, but he reminds us that this is applicable to all then who will come to faith in Jesus Christ and follow in those very footsteps. This prayer is for you, a disciple of Jesus Christ. We've looked at a few ideas here in John chapter 17, turning over a few stones Seen some of the facets, I assure you there are many more. I most likely, I can't see the clock, so I probably will be able to finish today. The flags are blocking it. That's a good thing. But any case, my intention is to finish up this chapter this week in the preaching, and we'll move on to chapter 18 of the Betrayal of Christ. But uh, we certainly have not exhausted it. And I hope at the very least in our looking at chapter seventeen, the high praise the prayer of Christ, that it has a source for you to go back to. A well for which you can take another drink. If you want to have some sort of devotional time in your life, I think printed devotionals are great to have or even get these emails. I look I probably look at four or five a each day, believe it or not. I, I like them. They're they're good. It typically takes a text of scripture and then provides a short explanation. And if you're getting it from Spurgeon or MacArthur, that's normally excellent. But sometimes it might be helpful just to take the text of Scripture and John 17 in particular, and bathe in the beauty of the sunshine that is here, this exaltation of Christ, maybe read a phrase or two, and then think about it, and then think some more, and some more. It, you will find that there are more facets here than you could ever imagine. Most of my study, if not all of it, is done in that way, I, I want to confess, I read the text, I reread it, I think about it. In fact, I go to bed thinking about it, and I wake up in the morning thinking about it, and throughout the day I think about it. It reminds me of Psalm 1 where it talks about the blessed man, that is, that one who is blessed because of God's righteousness granted to him, but also characteristic of who he is, and certainly the, um, the manifestation in his life, the blessed man meditates on his word, day and night. In other words, he consumes it, and it's a part of him. And beloved, if you do this, you would be amazed how much application you would have in your own life for this truth, and in the lives of others that might come across your path. So sometimes just going slower might be helpful, and just take a selection of the word. I would encourage it. And Christ here is, is the path of life. So I don't intend to exhaust the scripture. In fact, I, I never really do. It's one of the challenges that, that I have. But I encourage you to spend time here and remember where this is and go back to it many times. In these final words here that Christ gives, he, he reminds his followers, and what I want to emphasize here, particularly in verse 24, is he reminds them where all of this is going to lead. If you're following Christ, where are you going? Well, what is all of this about? This religious activity coming on the Lord's Day to worship him, taking communion, to be reminded of his sacrifice? It will lead to what we call heaven. Heaven is the final destination for those that are in Christ. That's where Jesus is going in this text here. And if you're following him, he will lead you there. That's where you're going. The pathway is to eternal life. If you remember, early in this discourse to these disciples, this is a private message to them, not publicly. It is for you if you're following Christ. He reminds you in chapter 14 to do what? Let not your hearts be troubled. For them it would be great trouble that they would face. He knew it, and he needed to teach them some final words. Beloved, I would tell you, every day you're going to face some trouble. And the call for Christ is this, don't let your heart be troubled. Your world might be, your experiences might be, your personal afflictions might be, but in your heart, that is in your mind, the mind granted to you by Christ, you don't need to have trouble. Believe. Believe God. Believe in Christ Jesus. The question is, the, the answer to that question is simply is have faith in him. And specifically, then he reveals or explains why you should have faith in him in this troubling time in the world in which you might exist because in his father's house are many rooms if it were not so I would have told you that I but I would have I go to prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's what Jesus is doing. He has gone to heaven, if you will, in that sense. He's preparing a place, not some separate place, but in the Father's house, right? And if he goes and does this, which he did, He's coming back to get you so that you can be there. That's the final destination. You don't need to have a troubled heart today or any day. Your troubles will be over through faith in Jesus Christ. The absence of Jesus right now, why isn't he here preaching instead of his messenger? Because Jesus is preparing a place for you. That's why. And part of that preparation is this life here. I think we'll increase our capacity to enjoy and worship through experiences we go through here, and certainly our mission to call others to see and savor Jesus Christ. He went. He's going to come again. And he's going to take you to himself so that You can be with him forever. Now, at this point, sometimes we are... We let some theological systems get in our way of this truth of Scripture. I don't want to get hung up on that. I think the Bible is clear in what it teaches. But all orthodox views, eschatologically speaking know this, that Christ is coming. They may not be sure exactly how it works out. Now, I'm not confused, I want to tell you that. Not everybody agrees with my view on it, that's fine. But I think Scripture's clear, and if you take it in a literal, not literalistically, but a literal sense, you'll see Christ is coming. There is symbolism, which we'll look to the book of Revelation in a bit, but that symbolism that is given isn't to confuse things. It's to clarify things, to explain things, to portray a physical reality. The symbols point to the substance, and the substance is Christ. Just as these communion elements point to the substance of Christ, these are symbols. And that's used a lot in the teaching. 14.3 indicates of John that he is coming and he is coming to take you to himself. He's coming for his disciples. His coming will entail judgment for those that are not his. So his coming to them will be great fear and dread and should be. It could happen at any moment. That is the next thing on the eschatological calendar. That is, Jesus is coming. He's coming quickly. And for those that are in Christ, you have no fear. He has not destined you to wrath, First Thessalonians 5, 9, but salvation through Jesus Christ as, as Lord. Again, even if you can't enumerate exactly how the timeline works, what I want you to know is to hear the words of Christ. I'm going away. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm coming again. I'm going to get you and you're going to be with me. You're not going to suffer wrath. You're going to receive salvation of Christ. He's promised. And on our text here, he he, includes this prayer that indeed this promise would be fulfilled. Let's read it in its context, and I'm going to break apart verse 24 as our focus, but to keep it in context, we'll read our entire section 20 through 26. In Jesus' prayer, remember, he shifts here from looking at his disciples and says in verse 20 of John 17, I don't ask for these only but for th- also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, and that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, love them even as you love me. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. There is the phrase. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. Father, we pray in conjunction with Jesus Christ even now that this desire which will be fulfilled will be something to which we truly believe That we would recognize that indeed Christ is coming to be, uh, to take us with him to be where he is, to see his glory. And I pray that this would be a great comfort, conviction, and courageous bent of your people looking for Christ our Lord. I pray this in his name. Amen. Now I mentioned, our key verse here is verse 24. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. As I mentioned, Jesus is ascending to heaven. His desire, which will be fulfilled, is that his disciples be with him. Right? That's what the text is. He's going away. And he wants his disciples with him, and that's what he's praying about. I stop and look at this text as I meditate and think about it, and I have three questions really to to ponder in my mind. First of all, is who's going? Who's going to heaven? Second of all, where is heaven? And thirdly, what is heaven like? Who's going? Note the text in verse 24. It talks about the people of heaven. It is those whom you have given me. You, here, is the Father. It is those who the Father has given. Can I stop right now and say that not everybody thinks they're going to heaven is going. There are many people that think they're going to heaven because of all kinds of things. They... Affirm some sort of religious conviction. They're a part of some sort of community. They've done certain works. Whatever it might be, maybe they're just a good person. But that's not what Jesus says. And Jesus reveals it right here of who is actually going to heaven. I thought about this, by the way. I've never preached an atheist's funeral. I'm sure they have them. I've never been invited, and I've never preached one. But I have preached a sermon or two at a funeral in which I didn't know, really, the person, one of them. I didn't know him at all. And some others, I had great questions. In my mind, they're not in heaven. And um, it's interesting to see the response of the people at that time because they all think their the loved one's in heaven. It's a challenging sermon to preach. You know what I do? I just preach the gospel. (laughs) I say, I'll tell you what it takes to get there. And this is part of the gospel right here. What does it take to get to heaven? Who's going? Well, Jesus identifies this once again. It's those who the Father has given me. Now, he's taught on this quite a bit. And note this, this is this closing prayer that Christ gives as he's about to be betrayed. You know, he's going to be broken apart from the disciples. He wants one more thing in his mind, and that is to know what, how you're going to get where I'm going. And he reiterates it one more time, these are those that the Father has given me. This language the Father given, we describe this as the decree of God. It is God's divine decree before the foundation of the world. We describe it as the election or choosing of the saints. And working that out, we might call it the predestination, that is God determining beforehand. Now, these are doctrines that are really misunderstood but clearly revealed in Scripture. Again, even if you can't unpack it, can't understand it in its fullness, here is a clear and plain statement, once again, where Christ says, those that are going to heaven are those whom you have given me. We have to be careful to believe what Scripture says, even if we have difficulty understanding it. I don't have a problem with that. A lot of people do. It's beyond my ima- imagination just thinking about God and the Godhead as we go through this in our systematic theology uh, studies here soon on the Sunday uh, morning at 945. Um, how God exists in three persons and yet is one essence or one being, that is a hard thing to chart on a, on a logical um, path other than to say We're we're saying he's one of one thing and three of another, but we often conflate those and then confuse them. But Scripture is clear, and when Scripture is clear, even if I don't fully understand it, I will believe it. When it talks about Scripture, how Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit bearing along the people, that is, is, it is all his work, and yet you hear it's written in the human hand. And even Paul says, hey, bring my coat. It's going to be cold. It's in the text. So it's his words, but they're God's words. And precisely how that works out. Or the fact that Jesus takes on human flesh. He is full humanity, but he never gives up his deity. Oh, it's veiled in flesh. We can't see the fullness of it on display, certainly. But yet they both are there. And so logically how to, how, to, um, how to work that out, well, um, it might be a problem for your mind, but it's not a problem for God's. And I'd rather have faith in what Jesus Christ said. After all, this is the one that came from above, that walked in perfect righteousness, that died and rose from the dead. I'll believe him. Jesus says that these are the people given to him. These are the people that are going to heaven by the Father. I said he taught this before. We can go a lot of places, but let's just stay in John 6 and say so that you would see it. John six thirty-five. Let me refresh your memory. Here Jesus is dealing with some antagonists, And he says to them in verse 35 of chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. And again, uses this symbolism to point to the substance, right? It's a great analogy. You're going to live, eat Christ. That's ultimately what matters. I'm the bread of life. Who comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe, verse 35. That's an important text to understand. You've seen, but you haven't seen. That's the idea. Sure, he's standing there. They hear what he's saying. But there's no appreciation of it. There's no understanding of it. They, they see what he's doing. These miracles that no one can do except God. Yet, they don't acknowledge that. And they don't believe it. So, here is is seen and yet not seen. And the question, answer to that, is why don't they then see? Why don't they believe? And I would extrapolate that beyond that. Why doesn't everyone see and believe? Can I tell you this? Christ is coming. He's going to come to take his own, to be with him forever. Everybody else is going to get judgment. And that can happen at any moment. And I don't want to minimize this just because this is on the topic because I do think we have some health concerns. But you know what? Everyone's concerned about COVID. No one's concerned about Christ. Be concerned about it. Take care of your health. Do whatever you need to do to protect yourself physically. But I can assure you there is an eternal judgment coming that is far greater And that's what we should ultimately be concerned about. Not to put these aside. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Making all these laws and rules and so forth, some of them good, maybe some of them not so good, whatever. Coming up with solutions and vaccines and everything else and protocols to save physical life, which is important. There's something far greater that we're talking about right now. Can I assure you this? At any moment, even while I'm speaking, Christ could come. Are you ready? If, you, if he comes to get you, you will be in the state of great blessing that you couldn't imagine. We'll talk about that if I ever get to it. But if you are not, you will receive great judgment forever. It, it, is, it is a vital call. But why will they not hear? Why will they not believe? Why do you speak these truths to, to people that seem not to have any concern at all? He would say it in verse 37. This is understanding this. Verse 37 of chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It goes back to what his prayer is, you know, when he says in verse 24, chapter 17, he says, all the Father's given to me. That's what he's saying. It is from the very decree of God. They will come. And when they do come, I'm not going to cast them out. That's how you are eternally secure, beloved. You want assurance of your salvation. It is because it is, you are a, a love gift, if you will, by the Father to the Son, and he ain't losing it. He's not a forgetful person. He will keep it. Verse 38, he says he comes down from heaven. And that's the imagery there. Right now, in chapter 17, he's talking about he's going back. But he came down initially... He comes down not to do his own will, just to do what he wants, but his directive is to do the will of him who sent me. Who is the will of him who sent me? It is the Father. It is the Father's will. It is his divine decree to do what? To save all the Father has given. And this is the will. If you don't know, in verse 39, to explain it, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given, but raised him up on the last day. What a great blessing for those that have been given by the Father to the Son. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Some looked. And didn't believe, verse 36. Others look, verse 40, and believe. What's the difference? Verse 39 All that he has given. This explains the reason why you have eternal life. It is because the gifting of the Father, it is by grace alone. And therefore, you would respond in great joy. Because no one can come without the Father, verse 44, and no one will come, verse 65. The tension in people's mind is both the fairness of this and then the individual free will of individuals to make up their own mind. Can I answer those objections? Two ways. One, I would say, believe the scriptures. Even if you can't rectify this in your own mind, believe what Christ said. Second, I would just say, logically, you don't want fairness. You want grace and mercy. Fairness means you're going to be drowned like rats. All of sin and come short of God's glory. The payday for your sin is death. That's what you deserve. Fair would be judgment. Fair would be Christ descending from heaven and bringing judgment to everyone. For those the Father has given, they get grace and mercy. It is unmerited and undeserved. How about free will? Oh, to make a a good decision? Sorry, you had that in the garden, and you rebelled against God in Adam. That's what Scripture says. And so your will is tainted. And this beautiful little one that is born, as delightful as she's going to be, little Esther, she's going to tell her mama and daddy no. And they will never teach her to tell them no. Where does that come from? It is part of the fall, the fallen humanity. It is why we all die. It is why we all sin. We are fatally flawed. Our natural inclination is to rebel against God, to choose evil. And when we do choose what others think of good, it's done for selfish reasons. It's done to assuage guilt. It's done for all kinds of purposes. It isn't motivated by a regenerated heart. When Christ saves the sinner, he changes the desire that now they have an inclination to repent and believe. You must repent and you must believe. It is your repentance, and it is your real belief. And I call people to do that. That is what you must do. But the reason why you learn later, it is because this has been granted to you by the Father. That's what we mean by grace. It has been given by the Father. And just as someone who is alive would move or respond in the way of life, therefore someone who is spiritually alive will do the same. There'll be a recognition of it. So I don't obsess with trying to find some sort of resolution. I look at the scripture and then I appreciate the beauty of all of it. And the imagery of the father giving... Uh, those that are in Christ to the Son, by the way, is an imagery of a bride. And again, you can't take these illustrations and apply every single point. And we have a tendency to do it, I think, in our Western mind, that this Eastern idea, they, they didn't nail it down like we do. At least that's my opinion when I look at it. But in any case, the imagery of the gifting of those from the Father to the Son, Scripture describes it often as a bride for the bridegroom. That the church, those that are in Christ, those that are given, are given to the Son as a bride. A gift in which they will then covenant together And forever be embraced in bonds of eternal love. A covenant bond that will never be broken. Our imagery of this life in marriage, yes, it will end. We say that in our vows, right? Till what? Death do us part. That's our commitment. But it will end. This giving of the bride to the son will never end he will never lose them he will come and get them he builds the home for them he will come to get them and bring them to him it what a beautiful thought of those that are in Christ listen to how Paul describes this and um, I may not get through this today Listen to how Paul describes this, though, in Ephesians chapter 5. This imagery of giving, again, what I'm trying to get away from is this, I don't know, some people have such a hard time thinking about it in a systematic way. It's intended to communicate the the glory of God, his his love for the beloved. And here's an imagery of a bride given to a bridegroom. As Paul... gets to the doctrinal commands then to the church, specifically to husbands in chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives. Okay? So there's a practical command to God's people. Husbands, love your wives. And then here is related to it, what does he think of to put in there? As Ephesians 5.25 As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. So he tells the husbands, husbands love your wife. Well, giving up, sanctifying, and cleansing. Well, we don't do that to its fullest extent. I suppose by application, you could say, sac- make sacrifice, sanctify, that is to set her apart, don't go running around o- over other folks, women, or whatever, and to uh, so set her apart, and then this cleansing, we would apply in the sense of, be the spiritual leader, you know, point to the word, teach the word, but for Christ it's literally beyond that he's using this as an illustration of how Christ loved the church he did that he sacrificed for his bride he truly sanctified his bride and made her pure through through the word of god and just to note that's what he's talking about drop down to, for sake of time verse 32 he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage and that marriage ceremony, not every detail of it, but that in general, is to point to this very union here. It, marriage then and that covenant ceremony is a portrayal of the beauty of Christ and his relationship for the church. A bride and a bridegroom. A bride given and secured by the Father, given to the Son in love. A bride that is then taken in and covenanted together forever. A bride that is then provided for as he creates a place for the bride. A bride in which uh, the bridegroom comes and takes the bride. Unto himself. Second question I'd have on this would be... How can you know then that you're given... Because when we present that, and Scripture seems to indicate that some of the people's response would be, okay, um, how do I truly know that i am been given by the Father to the Son? Because that would be important. I wouldn't be deceived. Maybe he didn't choose me. Maybe he cho- chose somebody else. So how would I know that I'm there How can I know that I am among the given? And furthermore, if you're teaching somebody else, telling them the truth, maybe they might stop and ask, hey, um, how do I know? Is there some sort of marking that people get? Is there some sort of secret knowledge folks have to know that they have been chosen by the Father and given to the Son and can expect the Son then to come and get his bride and bring Him to him? You've seen it before, but let me just remind you one more time. John 20, verse 30. John 20 and verse 30. It really provides a early conclusion. It's going to conclude one more time in the gospel in the next chapter, but 20, 30 drives to the point Of why this is written. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which aren't written in this book. But these are written. They're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have eternal life in his name. Can I tell you how you you can know? Through his word look and live, look and see Christ in his word, and live. These things are written. He uses this as a means by which to call his bride. They will hear his voice, and they will respond, and they will come. Here's one of the questions that you can ask, well, okay. And I do point people to specifically the Gospel of John, but you can point them to the entire Bible. The beauty of the Gospel, John, is not that it's the only book like this, but it is specifically written with this goal in mind. This is where it's heading. This is why it begins with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Do you see Christ? Do you recognize that in the beginning was Christ before everything began in time? that it is indeed he who created all, that in in him is life. This is why we live and breathe and have our being. It is because of Christ. That's how it begins, to portray the beauty of Christ. Do you believe? Does this affect your mindset, your affections, your attitudes? Jesus does miracles in John includes seven specific ones. Oh, Jesus did many, many more. But seven specific ones are pointed there to demonstrate some key aspects. Not all of them. is not comprehensive. But as you read through it, when you think about it, Jesus turning water into wine in chapter 2, demonstrating that indeed he is the source of life, as claimed. He heals a nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He does that without even going there, demonstrating his sovereign power over all. If you remember in chapter 5, there's a lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus says, get up, walk right now. In John chapter 6, there's a lot of hungry folks that come out, at least 5,000 men. And probably three times that if you count the women and children. And And Jesus would say in John chapter 6, as we already read, he says what? I am the bread of life. We think that life comes from the stuff we physically put in our mouth. It comes from the one who is in the beginning, who created all things, who sustains all things. He demonstrates that indeed through this, physical miracle that Jesus is the source of life and the sustenance of life. In the same chapter, then, a storm blows up in John chapter 6, and Jesus does what? He just walks on it, and he calms it. Who could actually say, storm, go away and stop? Stop. Wait the next time a tornado comes along and try that. Or if you're out in the ocean, and act, I'm not a seafarer, but that could be a very scary thing I could imagine. You have no safe land around, and, and water's in great tumult, tumult. It is only the very word of Christ that will stop it immediately. There's a man that's blind from birth in John chapter 9. And Jesus gives him eyesight, Someone who never physically saw before is given eyes. Jesus truly is the light of the world. And finally, the seventh sign of Jesus in Lazarus, it raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. At any moment, Jesus could say, get up and walk, and you will. He can grant physical resurrection, he can grant a newness of life. Do you see and believe? That's the question. There were many who saw and didn't believe. You understand that. Most rejected. I can't imagine it. I really can't. If you could see all of these, just these seven, and remember, this is such a small selection of what Christ actually did. He was going everywhere and healing everybody and taking everything. It was just an amazing thing. He had to constantly get away because they would throng him, as you can imagine. Let me tell you, no one has ever put on some sort of miracle show and done any of these seven. I can tell you that right now. They don't have these kinds of gifts. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit to claim that. They make a mockery of who Christ is. But this is done by Christ. Do you believe him? That's the question. And Jesus made some categorical statements as to who he actually is. As if at this point we would need him to tell us. He was affirmed by the Old Testament prophet who made a bridge, John the Baptist, a man that was totally respected. He said, I can't even tie his shoes. He that comes after me, he was before me. How was he before him? He was physically born. Because he is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. Jesus would include these I am statements. There are many of them, at least 23 or more in the Gospel of John, but seven specifically, John is so careful in how this is written together because these things are written, what? So that you will believe Jesus will make some specific I am statements. The I am has to refers to a claim to be Yahweh, that is God Himself incarnate, as the scriptures say. And He will clearly say, "I am the bread of life," John six thirty-five. "I am the light of the world," John eight twelve. "I am the door of the sheep," John ten seven. "I am the good shepherd," John ten eleven. "I am the resurrection and the life." John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. I am the true vine. John 15. Here's the question Do you believe? Those who believe then can be assured that they have been given by the Father to the Son as a gift of love, a bride. For the bridegroom, do you believe? Do you believe that God so mercied and graced the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes shouldn 't perish but have eternal life? It is a matter of faith, beloved. These things have been written so that you would believe. And the real question to examine your own heart is, do you believe? Our belief can wane at times and wax at other times. But it is always there. And it is that which drives us back to see the beauty of Christ. The glory of who he is. And that's why these things have been written. It is written so that you indeed will, will look to Christ and live. The Old Testament lo- illustration when the, when the Israel had rebelled against God and judgment came on them in the form of snakes. You know what they did by the way of symbolism? Took one, right, created a, a snake and put it up on a, on a stick. And the response was look and live. John uses that same illustration in his gospel to tell you what that points to. That symbolism pointed to a man on a cross dying for your sin. And the question is, are you looking? Yeah, you see it? Yeah. Are you living? Do you believe? That is the point. Look to Christ and live. cherish the fact that in Christ, the Father gives all of those in Christ to his Son as a love gift so that he will uh, come and get them. And as our, back to our text says in verse 24, that they may be with me where I am. And that's my final question to you here. As is I'm going to close this out and I'm going to return to this chapter one more time. I tried to finish it, but I got caught up in thinking of Christ. And that's not a bad thing, and I hope you do too. But he says that they, in verse, back to our text, just one more thing, 1724, that they may be with me where I am. Here's my question. Do you want to know that you're with, the, that you are been given by the Father as a love gift to the Son? Here's the question. Do you want to be with Christ? Do you want to be with him where he is? Now, part of it is you may not understand what that is like, and that's what we'll talk about next week, hopefully. And maybe that will increase your desire to be with him. But do you have a desire to be with Christ? This is how you can have assurance. We we don't look about uh, filling out some sort of form or checking some sort of marks on our body to whether we have been given by the Father to the Son. It is, do you have a sign of life? And you know what the first sign of life is? Repentance and faith. It is ultimately belief. And you could just use the word belief because belief means that you are abandoning what you affirmed before or the direction that you were going. In other words, you are repenting. So you can just be say it in some word, one simple word, and that is believe, trust in Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, indeed, I'm thankful for the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord, not by our own design, but yours. And I pray for myself and your people that we would find great blessedness in your grace and mercy overflowing to us, sending the Son to accomplish all that is required and then promising to come again and snatch us away. I pray for your beloved that they would increasingly recognize the degree into which they're loved by you, cared for, concerned, regardless of whatever circumstance they might find. And I pray the hope of Christ's soon return would be a great comfort to all. May we enjoy the hope that we have in Jesus Christ alone. I pray in his name. Amen. Take a moment now to think on these things privately where you're at and then we'll sing and have a benediction together. Take a moment now. Father, grant us great faith in Christ. And may it be the joy and rejoicing of our soul. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, since I didn't end where I wanted to end, I do want to sing the song that you just played, of course. I always mess you up. What hymn number are you on? I like that one. When I first believed, What? 104. See, we never know where we're going to get if you let the Spirit work, but sometimes help us out with a song, too. 104 in your hymn book. All right. And it does focus on belief. So let's stand and sing together. Jerry will lead us.
2: May the Lord be your counselor all the days of your life, even in the night. May the Lord instruct your heart. May you always set the Lord before you, and may he always be at your right hand, so that you shall never be shaken. May your heart be glad, and your tongue rejoice, and your body dwell secure. May the Lord make known unto you the path of life, fill you with all his presence, and give you pleasure at his right hand forever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.